Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are... However you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Matt Cummings. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, 847-866. WNUR is our number in studio. Call us live on air and have your opera voice heard, 847-866. 9687. It's also Phonathon. It's our annual fundraising drive. We are so close to $20,000 over the last week. We got one more day to go. You can donate online, WNUR.org. All right, tonight it's a triple header from Lyric Opera of Chicago. Composer Gregory Spears joins us live via phone with librettist Greg Pierce. He created the opera Fellow Travelers, which opens this Saturday at Lyric Unlimited right here in Chicago. Find out why the two Gregs were drawn to the story of forbidden love in McCarthy-era 1950s Washington, D.C. And then Oliver goes inside the huddle with tenor Andrew Stenson, who's singing the role of Ferrando in Lyric's production of Mozart, Così fan tutte. Oliver and Andrew discuss singing Mozart, and they commiserate over the pressures of being a hot Asian dude in opera. Plus, Oliver and Matt play Monday evening quarterback and review Lyrics' recent production of Guno's Faust, as well as the Met in HD presentation of Rossini's Semirami Day. Man, we got a lot going on on this show. Oliver Camacho, how the hell are you? My God, there is so much lyric opera on this show today. It's Triple like header, man. It's like we're an advertisement for them. <laughs> Digging the corporate dime. Yeah. Yep. No, we're not. Uh, Especially Matt, with the news that's broken earlier today. Going to get to that I'm in 30 a, seconds, Matt Cummings. I'm, I'm good. I'm trying to find a way to see Oliver from the corner back here. Oh. Yeah. But, so what, what is that news, Oliver? Well, a uh, press release today from the Metropolitan Opera saying that the Met has officially cut ties and that uh, they feel like they're washing their hands. I mean, I should read the press release, but they're basically saying, don't blame us. You know? es- essentially. <laughs> yeah. It's Wait. Like, is something happening with James Levine? I don't know if I've heard. Is, is that has that been talked that one to They death. said something like, "We interviewed seventy people, and we think this stuff is true now, but we didn't know about." But we it. didn't know about it. Definitely, no one knew about it, and it's not our fault. Yeah. And it was independent, so you can't yeah. yell at us anymore. The PDF. This was through Parterre, I think, Oliver. That you. Oh, that, the Met released it, but yeah. it's published on, on that, Parterre. That's so. where I saw it first. It was unsigned. That little statement was unsigned. Oh. I thought that was weird. Hmm. I don't know why. It felt like a group effort or, or no one was going to kind of step up and and pull the trigger or swing the axe yeah, or whatever. I, it seems a little bit like wishful thinking to me, but I guess we're going to have to see how it plays out. Yeah, there's definitely a developing story. But I mean, this was this was bound to happen. And so this just today was the day that the shoe dropped and we'll see what the fallout is. from it. I there. mean, that's probably why Yannick Nezis again got rushed to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. All right, let's do this. 
Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Gregory Spears writes music that blends aspects of romanticism, minimalism, and early music. His work has been called astonishingly beautiful and coolly entrancing. His latest opera, written with librettist Greg Pierce, his fellow travelers, and it opens this Saturday at Lyric Unlimited right here in Chicago. Greg Spears, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, you're in New York City, right? And you're coming into town for opening? That's right. I'm at... Um uh, in New York now and flying in Wednesday morning. Let me let me start with this, Greg. We're going to jump around a little bit here because you and I first met um, when I directed Paul's Case in Pittsburgh, which was the, the second production of that opera. That was 2013. But what I realized was, was that Fellow Travelers was actually workshopped prior to that. Yes, it was uh, about four months before that when we went straight from there to... Uh to the uh, production of Paul's Case at the Prototype Festival and then Pittsburgh. And, and what was it about the novel by Thomas Mallon that, that the opera is, is based on? What was it about that novel that was so intriguing to you? Well, interestingly, the, the novel was first uh, brought to me by Kevin Newberry, who had a, um, a friend in Santa Fe, not at Santa Fe Opera, but Santa Fe, the town itself, who was interested in literary fiction and had read the novel and uh, thought it would make a good opera. I brought it to Kevin, and um, and then Kevin brought it to Greg Pierce and I, and we read it and loved it as well. And that uh, that uh, original reader was uh, Sterling Zinsmeyer, who would go on to co-commission the opera, the Cincinnati Opera. Um, but what really drew me to the book was um, really the love story at the center of all this historical fiction, because it's a you know Thomas Mallon writes a lot of books. Um, about politics and you know, you know, stuffed with actual true information and then in this case has these fictional characters at the center of all this very true uh, uh, McCarthy uh, era Washington um, milieu and um, anyway we, Greg and I were both drawn to the story at the center of the three main characters uh, uh, a gentleman named Hawk and Tim and then um, a woman named Mary and, uh, and thought, oh, well, if we could center it on those three characters, we thought we could make an opera. And so there's the workshop. It then went to Cincinnati and then yes. to Prototype, and now it's here, and now it's going to Minnesota. Yes, uh, in uh, June, I believe. Yeah. Exactly. And, I mean, ha- has has the production changed at all in those different intera- iterations? And I hear and there are so less how. butts in Chicago. <laughs> Wait a minute. We've lost butts. Apparently there's yeah. fewer butts in Chicago. <laughs> oh, you know, I haven't been there. You know, I haven't actually seen. I was there for the first three days for music rehearsal, but then the first staging rehearsal was, um, I flew out the night before that. So okay, I'm well, well yeah, I guess the composer doesn't have a say over how many butts, how many butts make it on stage. The, the butt count that could be in it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talking about, thanks, Oliver. Yeah. But the, I mean, obviously the, the, the music hasn't really changed that much, or am I wrong? Has it? Well, you know, we were lucky enough in Cincinnati that they uh, had the foresight to really um, uh, do the fundraising to record the piece. And so as a composer, of course, that sends me into a sort of overdrive to try to make sure any revision that uh, that I wanted to make, and then, of course, Greg Pierce as well, that we made sure we did as many of those as possible in the last days before opening. So um, but generally, it's pretty much the same piece uh, as from the premiere, um, uh, with the exception of 
two lines which were originally spoken, which are now set. So um, unless you know the recording very well, it's basically the same, <laughs> same piece. And the the casts have changed from city to city? Um, yes, we had one new cast member in New York, and then we have um, uh, six out of the nine cast members in Chicago are new. So that's that was really exciting because I, I did get to work with everyone um, musically, and, you know, that's kind of every composer's, you know, dream is to be able to hear an opera more than once, and then the idea of being able to actually hear roles created afresh by new artists is really special. Actually, I, you know, I, I, should, I almost said it was the first time that I've had the chance to do that, but actually with you, George, in Pittsburgh, we really got to um, watch new artists make those roles again um, from the premiere cast. Gregory, this is, this is Oliver here. Um, hello. Um, hello. I am reading some of the press that you received for this from Chicago Tribune and Wall Street Journal, and I'm just noticing how often um, the... Um, journalists describe your writing for the voice and comparing it to like madrigals and like Baroque vocal flips and somebody says Neo Puccini. And so, it, I mean, all of that to me kind of translates into you understand singers and that you are giving singers an opportunity to, you know, use their training uh, to to sing your music as opposed to having to learn like new techniques and new styles. And one one as far as saying that you might be like, a really great understander of the American cadence of language, you know, which I think is a really mm-hmm. beautiful compliment. Can you address like what it is that you did uh, as a, how you developed your style as a composer to work specifically with singers? Because I find that a lot of 21st century operas are not so kind to, you know, the natural singing technique, bel canto singing technique. Sure. You know, I think um, a lot of the education for composers really skips over the voice um, and I think the reason for that, at least when I was in school, a lot of the um, voice departments, uh, there wasn't a great relationship between the composition department and the voice department. I think that's changing now, thank goodness. But I wrote all instrumental music in college, and then I started writing for the voice when I got to New York, and I actually met singers, and I, I really, um, I love singers, and I, I have an enormous amount of respect for them, because I actually... I, I kind of marvel at the courage it takes to sort of stand up Thank there. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, but really, I mean, it's like a very deep kind of um, respect, and I think that that makes me want to hear singers be comfortable. I mean, it also makes me want to hear singers sound amazing, which sometimes means pushing um, artists to, you know, to really um, do kind of amazing things on stage. So it doesn't mean the music is, is necessarily simple to sing, but I, I never want to have a singer feel uncomfortable like it makes me uncomfortable and i end up changing i'll actually just rewrite something immediately if a singer is is cast and for some reason it's not fitting their voice and i really believe that the great repertoire was written for singers not voice types and um and so uh there's always individuals and not not you know mezzos or you know even even the the minor distinctions of fox is not i really just think of, of actual singers when i write and so yeah, being able to really connect with people and um, and be writing for a person, which was really different than the way I was trained, which is that you write for the violin, and and then there's you arrive at the orchestra on Wednesday, you have two rehearsals, and the piece premieres Friday night, and then you go home Sunday morning, you know, <laughs> after having a nice lunch with you. Know, um, and right. opera's not like that at all. You really meet people, you really create a collaborative relationship, and. 
for me, that was a revelation. So I think that hooked me. And I'm also a huge opera fan. That's the other thing. And I, I go to a lot of opera, and I really um, I'm a big opera nerd. So some some composers, you know, love the idea of opera. And but to actually be able to see a lot of opera is there's really no substitute for that. And um, and I'm lucky enough to live in New York. So, Gregory, this is Matt. Uh, so you're saying that you're when you write, you have specific people's voices in mind. What is that like to hear other people do it after the fact? Do you do you go back and reevaluate what what it was you wrote the first time, or is it that you're more more just surprised at what other people can bring to something that you might not have heard the first time through? Well, you know, it's interesting. It, once you really tailor uh, a piece to a certain voice, I find that it actually strangely fits other voices better than if you write for a voice type. Um, so if you really like, um, if you really craft a a role for a specific person, then 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 ironically, it's actually going to transfer. It's going to be more likely to transfer unless you're writing for a very specialized singer, which um, I actually kind of like singers that kind of sing in normal range. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I. Um, and so I found that a lot of the roles have translated without a lot of tweaking, but I absolutely will um, uh, do that um, if, I mean, I did that actually in Pittsburgh, you know, at George, I don't know if you remember, but there were, changed quite a few things. And again, it's, they do, yeah. you, have con- you have to convince singers that you're not changing it because you're, you're not like making it easier or harder. You're just actually like a, a suit or something, you know, it never fits perfectly. You always have to do a tiny bit of tailoring. And I think that that is part of the joy of, of having opera be a living thing and not something that's a piece of printed paper that, you know, someone has to try to, you know, aspire to. But um, anyway. Um, you know, Gay is having a moment right now in opera. It has been for a long time, but I mean, it's really having a moment right now. Yeah. And um, uh, Opera News, Fred Cohen, said that you might have created the Gay La Boheme um, do you feel like that's what you wanted to do? And do you feel like you might actually have a more timeless love story inside of you that, that's still yet to be composed, you know? Well, I certainly, I certainly think opera is great for love stories. So yeah. I, I would, I would love to write another one at some point. Um, I did know I really wanted to write a love story before writing this piece, which is why when I read the book, and I think Greg Pierce felt the same way, we really wanted to make this about, that relationship and not get too, um, and use the sort of political situation around the, uh, the main characters as a, as a kind of uh, a way for us to understand them more rather than sort of trying to tell the story of the McCarthy era. I think we're trying to tell the story of, of this love affair that is um, kind of doomed because of the McCarthy era that surrounded it. So, um, uh, so yeah, I mean, we were certainly focusing on the on the love story, um, but uh, you know, one of the things you know, I, uh, Puccini wasn't a composer I was thinking a lot about when I when I wrote this. I, I was I was um, uh, thinking of a lot of other things actually, but um, but one of the things I, I I I was interested in is trying to write like kind of like a romantic love scene, you know, the kinds that we've seen a million times with straight people in opera. And like you know, have this kind of lush love scene, which um, which I, I, there was a part of me that was 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 excited to try to use in a way a sort of kind of conservative type of music to do that, but of course in a way that it was never for a purpose it was never really meant for you know to have a tenor baritone duet, which is something that's not all that common. Um, 
I sort of did something that I that I, I this, so there was a, uh, a number in Paul's case, which is a tenor duet, which which I had done previously, and I was uh, really interested in, in, in that, that dynamic, which I guess was a little different than maybe a typical um, love duet in the sense that it was too um, too males, and so there's this sense of competition in it, and, and that gives you a, a, an ability to write very florid. Um, virtuosic music, and I think that translates a bit to fellow travelers and the love scene. There's this very, they're kind of singing on top of each other, and it's, it, there's a sort of comp- playful competition in a way that hopefully translates to exciting singing. We're talking to composer Gregory Spears here on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM. So, Greg, to me, it feels like we're living in the golden age of the American Chamber Opera, right? It makes me think of Fellow Travelers, which is having multiple productions. It makes me think of As One, which has got to be this decade's most produced chamber opera. It makes me think of composers like Missy Mazzoli, David T. Little. I'm just naming a couple names here of a very big roster. But what, what's in the water? right now, man? Like, why is this happening now? Why are we starting to see the American Chamber Opera really taking off? That is such a good question. <laughs> um, well, I love all those composers that you mentioned. In fact, I teach with Laura Kaminsky, who wrote As One at Purchase College, and I was just in her studio today, in fact, teaching. Um, so there's definitely a community here in New York. I also know Missy of David. And um, I think... Uh, that is a hard, hard question. Um, one of the things I like about all those composers who you just mentioned are the way in which um, each of those composers sets English in a very idiomatic way and yet has a very, you know, like Missy and David, have very distinct musical voices. And I think um, the way in which you can, you can go to uh, Dog Days, for example, and you don't need super titles. You can just watch that piece and hear it and experience it as a piece of theater. And I think that directness is something that's really is really speaking to people. And I think there's also a sort of parallel moment where this country has gotten really excited about uh, composers like Handel, who we would call a chamber opera composer today, you know, I think, because the operas are a little bit smaller scale. I actually don't love the word chamber uh, attached to opera because I think most opera is much smaller than the kinds of things that would be done at the Met or at the larger auditorium with the lyric, um, a lot of houses are, are doing um, sort of medium-sized operas, is kind of how I like to think about them. And, um, and I think that that's bringing opera back to a scale under which much of the repertoire, maybe most of the repertoire that we love today, was written um, a, a sort of 700-seat um, space. And I think that that allows for a different type of voice and a different type of diction that allows us to really see a singing actor saying something to us and saying something to other singers and, and, and also allows the voice of the composer like David Little's voice is so connected to the way in which he, he his instrumentation works and the same with Missy and Laura um, that I think that that scale is really something that um, again I think somehow it's connected to the resurgence of Baroque opera I'm not sure how but I love that all those things are converging and I agree with you I think it's really great time to be a composer of opera right now. I know that it's not a fully developed thought, and nor is mine, but I, I really like where you're going with that answer. I do think that um, you know it's also a reaction to shrinking audience sizes. So mm. the ones that are left really are interested, and there's 
only 700 of them in the hall instead of, you know, 4,000 of them. So maybe we're, we're creating works that are the right size for them. And we have to start rethinking about the opera house and where we perform these things. And I, I do appreciate that Lyric Opera is, you know, looking at different venues besides Civic Opera House, which is just so big, you know? Yeah, and I'm, I'm a huge, you know, I'm like the biggest Verity fan on the planet, you know, so, <laughs> so I love going to these big, you know, opera houses and seeing Verity and Wagner and, um, and, and, and Strauss and all that sort of stuff. So, like, but I also love seeing Handel in a, in a small space, and I was in Europe for a year, and I loved the scale of some of those houses that so much of this repertoire was designed for, and, and I think having that variety is, you know, um, that's what people want these days, right? They want to be able to choose, like, am I the kind of person who likes to go to the smaller opera, one of the bigger ones, or maybe I just want to see the, the, the big stuff. Um, but I think that a lot of companies are adding that that uh, that sort of option that's a sort of, again, a medium-sized opera, and I think it's I think it's so healthy, actually. Fellow Travelers is being presented through Lyric Unlimited. It's at the Athenaeum Theater right here in Chicago, March 17 to 25. The production directed by Kevin Newbery, written by Gregory Spears and Greg Pierce. Greg, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Thank you. And uh, wishing you safe travels, and uh, hope to bump into you uh, right here in Chi-Town. Yes. See you soon. Uh, hey, we're going to step aside for one quick second here, not for a uh, PSA, but just a quick announcement that it is the final days, final day of Phonathon here at WNUR. What does that mean? It means that um, you are what keeps this station going, and we are 300 bucks shy of raising 20 grand to keep this station going. It's entirely student-run by the students here at Northwestern University. Every dollar counts. Every donation counts. You can do it online, wnur.org. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Opera box score on WNUR 89.3 FM. Just listening and having a conversation with composer Gregory Spears. I met him back in 2013 when I was directing his first opera, Paul's Case, and Guys, just so articulate, and man, here we are. I third just, opera now. you know, learned about him today, and I'm now I'm super excited to see the show. You should be, yeah. and I love him. I want to give him a hug. Like he seems like a real good guy. You He's know? a great guy. Yeah. Uh, did you give Andrew Stenson a hug? Yeah, you know me. Was that was that enjoyable? <laughs> He's a hugger. Yeah, I mean, I Andrew's always, a hugger. I'm, no, no, I'm I don't a know. About I'm always <laughs> I'm always testing Oliver's the boundaries. Like, I will I will hug somebody when they're not ready to be hugged. And I'll know while I'm hugging them, okay, this was not the right time, but, you know, I got to push you a little bit, you know. Hashtag you too. (laughs) So uh, tell us about the man, Oliver. So um, last week uh, I had my review of the Lyric Cozy, um, which is always very tricky for me because it's an opera I love so much and I don't think a perfect, you know, version of it exists. But uh, Lyric's production uh, was on the positive side. I I enjoyed it. I loved the singing. And I particularly liked uh, Andrew Stenson's performance because he just seems like a really, like, easy stage presence, like, fun to work with. Uh, You know, the type of person probably takes direction very well. Directors must love working with him because he just was willing to do anything. And he delivers uh, on the vocal end, too. And, um, yeah, I, I just wanted to meet him and learn more about him. And, you know, he's Korean, 
Uh, so he is like a, a tenor who is not singing big Verdi stuff, who's doing like more like ingenue type, you know, material. Uh, and I think it's tricky to be a singer of color in his Fach. Mm. So we talk about that. We talk about Mozart. Uh, we talk about other things. I can't remember all of it now, but it was a really enjoyable conversation. You're not going to get all of it, but we are going to start with uh, him singing uh, Candide, the end of Candide, from the 2015 Glimmerglass Festival with Catherine Lewick as Cunegonde. Um, you sang last week in the Beyond the Aria series, and I got a chance to see you in a very small venue. And then later on that week, I saw you in Cozy in a gigantic venue. <laughs> and I have to say, one of the things that was remarkable to me was how comfortable you were in both size venues, being just very open and um, being very funny. <laughs> and I wonder if you have any, like, thing to say about being a funny guy and, like, how what you're... <laughs> what your comfort is with that and how you got to that point because I find that comedy is actually one of the hardest things for opera singers, you know, to accomplish Yeah, that. you know, going off of that, it's, you know, because opera is very unique in that, like, we don't get previews. Mm -hmm. So, and our dress rehearsal for Cozy was a, a pretty limited audience from, we think, like, company invite, I believe. So we didn't quite know what was going to hit in the comedy until opening night. 
versus like a, a play or a musical will have countless previews to to fine-tune all that and mm -hmm. gauge what's gonna hit on a regular basis before they bring it to the official opening so in in that sense like you have to really be on your toes in order to make all of this stuff uh, work so I heard you also um, a couple years ago in Belcanto um, and so your character was Gen Watanabe mm -hmm. And I see that later on you are, or you already sang a role. Was that a premiere, the Danny Chen role? Yes, the, in 14, that was the first time we did it, and okay. we're doing an expanded two-act version at Opera Theatre St. Louis this so, summer. Was that written for you? That was written for me, okay. yes. Yeah. So I, you, you have these two roles that look very Asian uh, on paper, and for those people who don't know, you're Korean, right? Yes, Korean-American. Okay. Yeah. So, but you ended up with... Uh, a name that doesn't that doesn't sound Korean at all. Well, I was uh, adopted when I was five and a half months old by a very wonderful, wonderful, very Midwestern uh, white couple in Rochester, Minnesota, okay. and so that's where yeah, my name Andrew Stenson. So this may be a question that makes me sound like a jerk, but like, has that been to your advantage not having a Korean name? You know, I'm I'm not entirely sure. It was it made for a very unique upbringing. Mm -hmm. I was very fortunate that uh, my best friend growing up in a lot of people in my friend circle were Korean adoptees. Okay. Not just Asian American, but Korean adoptees specifically. Um, it was a very interesting journey, like growing up, kind of uh, trying to, to form your identity, mm -hmm. you know, because uh, you're not white, but you're not quite Korean, but there are some things there that, you know, and obviously the way you look, and it, it was nice to have that community around to be able and to... Where did you grow up again? Rochester, Minnesota, right okay. in the toe of... I want to know how you feel as a singer of color mm -hmm. doing repertoire potentially that is seen more as, you know, classic romantic repertoire. I mean, you're, you're starting to add those roles to mm -hmm. your repertoire. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know much about American Soldier, but I see you've done uh, Ernesto, we talked mm -hmm. about, and now you're doing Ferrando, and you've done Tamino, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there's some more lyrical stuff down the pipelines, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, I just want to know how you feel generally, and like if you felt like you've had any pushback or... or Early in my career I did have pushback. I had, you know, prominent people say that, you know, and some of this I'm actually very thankful for, is like, you're going to have a harder time because, you know, you're shorter and you're Asian and it's going to be harder for people to want to cast you mm -hmm. in some of these parts. I had some people saying, oh, well, you'd be such a great Goro, you know, or like, you're too short for some of this. So what you can like do maybe some of the short tenor roles, but you know, you could, should also think about character stuff. So I entertained that for a couple of years. And then when I was at uh, Santa Fe, David Holloway was hearing me sing one of the Petrarch sonnets through the door and he like barged in. He's like, fantastic you should be singing more leading yeah. leading tenor stuff you know you have the voice for this stuff so I sang my house audition I sang for some comfa for my house audition that year and I got some feedback with it but you know from that point on especially when Glimmerglass hired me to do Martin in the Tenderland they were really encouraging me to do these leading romantic tenor roles and having that stamp of approval maybe has changed some opinions but I did find, too, when I went to work in audition in Europe, I got the same pushback hmm. for some people. Well, here's the thing. We were talking about earlier um, that you have natural, or maybe not natural, but like you've developed a skill in comedy. Mm -hmm. And maybe you developed that skill because you were working on some character stuff, you know? But is there any 
uh, danger of you being too good in that type of repertoire and not being taken seriously? I think it's just streamlining what you're auditioning with, I think, and what you're projecting. Um, I try to fill a niche of, uh, my girlfriend and I call this, I, I'm an Anja dude. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, that, you know, I, I'm, I, I seem to have a knack for portraying, you know, younger, maybe in, in, impetuous men or something that are in these kinds of situations, though. And hopefully the, the more unique spin that I can put on this is, you know, charm and maybe some comedy with it too. But that's, you know, there's, there are many ways to attract people beyond just like walk on stage and smolder. Yeah. You know, and I, I would like to think that my positive assets lie beyond that. Well, I wanna, that's perfect segue to, or seg to talking about Cozy because I feel like this role is asking you to both, you know? Mm -hmm. Like the first half, the, this current production, uh, is asking you to just be pretty, you know, farcical, you know, mm -hmm. like it's pretty slapstick, you know. Mm -hmm. But for those, everybody knows the plot, or most of you do, you mm -hmm. know, it gets pretty intense in the second yeah. act, you know. Um, I, what can you say about this role? Because it's actually one of my favorite operas, and I would it's just one of my to, favorite. Yeah, I'd love yeah. to hear what you think about Ferrando, and you know, is there something that happens like after, um, you know, Guillermo? tells you what happened mm -hmm. that you have to like switch in your brain to like okay now I'm serious now I'm going to really try mm -hmm. to do this you know well you know like I what I love so much about Cozy is 250 years later we're still asking the same question should you be with somebody that you're very much alike with or somebody who's completely different from you and you know no one can concretely say what is the best option it changes depending on what point you're at in your life it's very different for everybody you know, the first time I, I, you know, encountered Cozy, I thought that Ferrando and Fiordaligi are kindred spirits. They belong together. You know, this is it. This is the ultimate thing. And then I did a Cozy where the Dorabella was really hot. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole time I'm like, where's Dorabella? Where's Dorabella? Where's Dorabella? And then when Guillermo's like getting up in her business, I'm getting super jealous. And... You know, just kind of like recognizing that you can have a very invested stake in both of them, which I think I'm able to bring to this time around, is that I have a very clear idea of why Ferrando's interested in both Fiordaligi and Dorabella. And honestly, it's complicated and a little bit different for me every single time. I remember a couple nights ago, or like a couple shows ago, you know, Anna Marie was just singing the end so beautifully when, like, uh, when we reveal ourselves, you know, and she's singing the music so beautifully, and I was just constantly drawn to her, even though I should be, like, trying to reconcile with Dora Bell, I'm just, like, thinking, Fiordaligi, Fiordaligi, Fiordaligi. And there are other times where Marianne has just, you know, sung her bits so beautifully, too, that I'm just like, I am so sorry. Mm -hmm. And it can affect you so strongly, so differently, every time. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, this opera is hard opera stage in any era, but I think mm -hmm. particularly right now in the reconciliation or the, of what are you mm -hmm. calling it, the, um, the, 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 the Me Too, too but they're calling yeah. it the reckoning. Okay, <laughs> yeah. The, that this opera seems to be one of the pieces of art that might go away for a while, you know? I mean, it's it's tough because that, you know, um, you know, I was talking to some friends about this too. Yeah, it's it's pretty hard to get past the fact that this, the show is, <laughs> is meant to make 
women look stupid, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a really big ask um, to make. <laughs> yeah, that, but, I mean, yeah, I, they're trying to hoodwink these girls. Yeah, even if the libretto has weaknesses, I feel mm-hmm. like the audience always is on the side of the women because mm-hmm. the the music for the women is so beautiful, yeah. you know, and so thoughtful. And I don't know there there's so many pauses in this show where clearly there's thinking happening mm-hmm. and you are right there with with the characters mm-hmm. when they're thinking you know mm-hmm. and it's unlike I mean any other show by Mozart where I mean like marriage figure just it's boom like it just goes it starts in but in cozy there's all these moments of reflection you know mm-hmm. and uh, yeah I often feel like an aria like per pieta it's mm-hmm. like this is an amazing piece of music yeah. and it's like so profound mm-hmm. and how could you criticize you know, Fiordaligi after hearing her sing that, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that music at the end, like these little duets they have in the finale, mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking yeah. music. And meanwhile, there's like this funny stuff happening around it, but mm-hmm. you're like, you can only hear those, you know, lament-like duets between the sisters, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's incredible. So. Yeah, that's interesting, though. You make an interesting point, though, too, that, like, because when it takes that final turn to serious, yeah. I think it's so fantastic and it reveals so much about love and relationships um that if you know for some like if act one or like some of the content is unacceptable is there a way to alter it even like there was that uh what was it the carmen in oh where they killed don jose (laughs) but like you know is there a way to to fudge this to make it more relevant to a 21st century audience but still be able to get these points across because I think some of them are just so important, even if they are kind of bound to these ludicrous pretenses. Yeah. Well, talk about if you don't mind singing mm-hmm. Mozart and like your approach because um, I think you do it very well, mm-hmm. and I wonder you. if you are thinking about your voice in a different way or you know trying to be more instrumental. I won't mm-hmm. put words in your mouth, but like, what do you have to say? I mean, it really depends on the role, for one. Like some of those early Mozart things where he is just kind of being a jerk and maybe doesn't, he's still brilliant, but doesn't quite know what he's doing as like, you mean much as the opera stuff. Like, yeah, like, song, yeah. yeah, exactly. Kind of like, uh, what is it? Oh, Mitridate. Yeah, Mitridate is yeah. insane. Yeah. Is absolutely insane. There's more high C's in that, I think, for the tenor than there is in Daughter it's of the Red. It's local spectacle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's also, like, I think probably further beyond the realm of what people were maybe capable of doing well at the time. But um, it, it really depends. Like, Adamino is completely different from Ferrando, which is completely different from Tamino, which is completely different from Don Giovanni. But uh, what I like about Mozart is a lot of the time there's this, this great like thing with tempo going on and that's a really expressive thing because it's crafted well enough that it's just like it's chugging along and it's chugging along and if you're able to shape within this this almost like pulse to the music you know and as that slowly goes up or comes back like you can feel your heart beat almost changing with that and when things are firing on all cylinders you know it's like rock and roll almost you know you get that same kind of like tingly yeah here we go here we go and do you have any uh, issues with the tessitura of this role or with, you know, there are some really treacherous phrases, um, like even in Unaura Morosa, yeah. and how it kind of sits on the passaggio for the last page, you and know? Unaura has been a journey for a long time, a long time. And now I think I'm finally getting a place where I can sing it freely in the kind of aesthetic that I want to create that ambiance and to be able to hopefully do a, a really good 
pianissimo reprise yeah. and you know draw the audience in and kind of just like get in Ferrando's mind yeah. a little bit what is it a coach told me that the key of A major is the key of true love mm. in this show so like when the girls are singing in the beginning about their boyfriends they're singing A major Unara A major yeah goes to A major yeah. you know and so that that needs to be a moment because things have been so busy where it just kind of calms down and settles down but I think of, in Mozart though maybe more along the lines of early music versus romanticism you know I prefer there are moments where like there's a long tense phrase built up but a lot of it seems to be shorter um, shorter gestures smaller yeah. gestures yeah Jim Gaffigan definitely was bringing that out yeah holy <laughs> yeah but it's great because it kind of it like ebbs and flows yeah. a little bit instead of like you know like Wagner is the music for like yeah. and this is kind of like that kind of thing yeah you know and I, I like the elegance that comes from that but it's also really fun to sing because you're able to kind of turn things around you know and two to four measures and like do something completely different like you know yeah. sometimes it's in the music sometimes you you put it on um so you're reprising this summer the danny chen role can you tell me about that because i don't know this opera and mm-hmm. it's, you said it was written for you mm-hmm. so danny chen uh was a private in afghanistan in 2011 and committed suicide mm. um and it you know his family and it's it's all it's it's very complicated because you know uh it's it was attributed to potential racism, institutionalized racism, and bullying within the the U.S. Army. And uh, during it, it, the way the opera is structured, it uh, starts in the courtroom during the court martialing of the the soldiers involved, uh, specifically surrounding the commanding officer whose name we had to change in the opera for obvious reasons okay. um, and it, it flashes back to you know like the kind of kid Danny is he grew up in uh, New York City Chinatown his parents don't speak English he had a dream basically to you know to be an American like a, a truly accepted American and the show deals a lot with what does it mean to be an American what does it mean to be Asian American um, what do people do in order to earn that, you know, and why should anyone get in anyone's way? This is something that we can all relate to. Awesome. So that's this summer at Opera Theatre of St. Louis. Yes. Great. And so Cozy Fantute runs until the end of this week. Uh, mm-hmm. end of, so by the time you're hearing this, there's two more performances, mm-hmm. Tuesday and Friday. Um, I highly recommend that you all go out and see this opera. You know I love this opera so much. <laughs> but uh, go hear Andrew. Uh, definitely pay attention to Marianne Crabassa, who we should all know. She's amazing. And, of course, there's Anna Marie Martinez and Joshua Hopkins. Is mm-hmm. Yeah. And He's, the legendary Alessandro Corbelli. Yeah. I mean, it's just top to bottom. Robot. Like, we, we have an unbelievable ensemble cast, which very rarely, I think, happens with no. this show. No, I'm, I'm thrilled about it. Well, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We're going to move along here with Monday Evening Quarterback. Pass or fail? Here's Monday Evening Quarterback. Well, 
when people um, donate to uh, WNUR, can they uh, earmark their donation for Upper Box Score and say, I'm donating in honor of Toby Wright's back wax? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Put that in the comments. <laughs> in the me- on the memo line. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Of your check when you write out the check. Yeah, your physical everybody, check. Everybody, you mail in. <laughs> the. I just want to say really quickly that we have to maybe name this episode uh, Andrew Stenson, the Ange Dude. It's Trademark. Pretty good. It's yeah. pretty good. The Lyric yeah. Opera of Chicago triple header continues. Oliver and Matt play Monday evening quarterback on Guno's Faust. So did you guys go to the same performance? We did. We, did. And we, we were sitting s- across the aisle, but mm. I was a couple Aww. rows in front of Oliver because yeah. they yeah. like me better. Of course they do. Because <laughs> you're white. That, that must be it. That's amazing. exactly yeah. right, Oliver. <laughs> um, so there are many reviews of this show out there, and I sort of poisoned my brain a little bit by reading a couple of them before I saw it. Uh, I have to say that the production, uh, which is designed by uh, Jonathan Frame, uh, really is the it, it's, it's a spectacle. And there's so much detail and there's so much to look at. And um, yeah, it's, it's really a visual feast, which is great for, I think, new audiences, but also makes it challenging for the singers to establish their own thing, like to step out of the production and be seen Um Luckily, there was some fantastic singing in the show where singers really did make an impression because their singing was just that good. Uh, but it takes a while for this production to make sense. There's a lot to look at, and, and it's sort very of, it's it's really enigmatic in terms of yeah. what the what the symbols are are representing. It took me a little while to figure out exactly what the concept of the show is, which yeah. it's a, it's much higher concept. Faust than just the straightforward Guno opera is. Yeah, and it has like some steampunk elements and some like shock-headed Peter elements. Like there's some really grotesque imagery, but it's all so beautiful. Like everything looks made by hand. Huh. So even the things that are terrifying are interesting to look at. And you know, what's the time period of it? Uh, un- kind of unspecified. I would yeah. say sort okay. of Victorian, of the, sort know, of Victorian yeah. turn, of, turn of the century in terms of the costumes. Yeah. And then the it's it's sort of high. It's got that steampunk, high tech, low tech kind of thing going on, where there's there's a lot of technology, but at the same time, it all feels like it's made out of. You can see the gears. gears. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hmm. So, uh, and it with an opera like Faust that has so such a long history. You know, it's based on a medieval legend. The Goethe adapted it, and he was not even the first one to do that. So many people have been attracted to the story that. I really feel like it's in the spirit of Faust to to put on a production like this where they want you to be thinking about what's going on. And that's sort of the opposite of how Guno music works, which is just about being pretty. And it is pr- and it's pretty and it's glorious and it's beautiful, but sometimes it can get a little bit monotonous. And yeah. to have the that kind the those stark images on stage for me kept me thinking about what they were trying to say and really kept me engaged in the performance. So I I'm coming down pro. So, yeah, well, there was a time when this was the most performed opera at the Met, or at least the most performed French opera at the Met. Like, it was super popular. And, you know, it's been in the canon forever. It's always been a hit. But they I used think to that, call it the Faust Spielhaus. Yeah. But I think that now, like, 21st century audiences aren't really ready for a four hour experience where the action doesn't start until after the first intermission, you know? Um, I think that yeah, it that's it works. It has to fight against that, and I think that this production is really trying to give you a lot to look at and think about. But I did notice people getting frustrated, and some people even leaving after the first. They grouped the first two acts together because they just weren't feeling it, and they just were confused. And the imagery 
and the symbolism does pay off in the end. And there's some really terrifying uh, images, um, like you know, um, Marguerite having their baby ripped out of her mm-hmm. stomach, you know, mm-hmm. by by Mephistopheles. We would say yeah. uterus. That's where the baby <laughs> yeah. grows. Yeah. <laughs> just out of her hoo ha, you know. Yeah. No, no <laughs> uterus. Just say the word anyway. So speaking of Marguerite. Uh, Eileen Perez made her lyric debut. Actually, she sang a concert last year with Domingo, but this was her first debut, like role debut, which is a shame because she's like already established her international level career. Uh, and she she delivered. I mean, lyric opera, I feel, is a space where the singers can often get drowned out by the orchestra. And she you could always hear her yeah. loud and clear. And yeah. and you never really you never lost the beauty of her tone, no matter what she was singing. And she went for some stuff that was like just really, really risky, like balls out singing, where you weren't going to expect her to go for that note and for it to hold it that long. And like for the tone was not even perfectly lined up, like where it was a little bit spread, but she didn't care. It's like, I got this. I'm going to just sing it. You and know? that's not and what you expect from that character either, wouldn't you say? It's definitely a more prim and proper character, but she went for drama and she Which was a good thing. She's a great vocal actress. Like she made a lot out of the Wa de Tulle, you know, yeah. the preamble to the Jewel song. And like the and Jewel song itself was not that special, but she made special moments out of everything else. Like the little uh, lament during the during the fourth act. I had know. I had goosebumps during the second during yeah. the during her second aria in the fourth yeah. act, where she's lamenting the fact that he's not coming back. Yeah, it was incredible. And the way that uh, it was unfortunate that her that that the role started off with some miscommunication with the conductor. And I'm uh, because Emmanuel Viom's work in this opera was kind of really detracted from many of the most beautiful marquee moments for me. Yeah, Salut and Jewel Song both struggled from ensemble, and the chorus, the first chorus, struggled from ensemble issues. Hmm. Um, but we'll just leave that there because, you know, everybody's done to do their best. <laughs> um, oh, the tenor was like, he made such an impression. Uh, Benjamin Bernheim. And let's hear a little bit of him. Yeah, right we now. have a clip of him singing uh, the end of the concert version of the Romeo aria, Left uh, Trois Soleil. So Benjamin Bernheim um, figured out how to like just step down stage center and deliver his salut and like the glorious high C and uh, other moments in the opera and just like kind of like step away from the production from the from the 
uh, production. Mm-hmm. And like there were definitely moments where it's like, okay, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to sing this. There's all this crazy stuff happening around him. But he took his moments and he delivered like a Park and Bark singer in those in those moments, and it was great. And it peeled the paint off the wall. <laughs> it was honestly. my fa- in, in in Act Two when he when he sees Marguerite for the first time. I was shocked when he goes up for it. There's there's one phrase that just sails all the way up to the top, and the, it felt like time stopped in the auditorium. And it felt like was, he was miked. I yeah. mean, like hmm. I've never heard such ringing, clear singing. In that house, you know, loud and like it really felt like it went right to your bones, like the tone. Like it was it was really impressive. And the tone was always beautiful. And he's getting a lot of compliments in the reviews about his style. And this is a really, really tricky thing to talk about, like the French romantic style. There's not a lot of people doing it. You got a little bit of sample of it there, but it's a way of singing with portamento that's different than the Italian portamento, which is very of lots of round vibrato in the portamento. The French portamento is a little bit more vibrato-less, not exactly straight tone, but it's like a little more slidey, you know? And he does it so well. And like the salut, actually the tempo was too fast for me, but I could hear him really trying to make those phrases to connect the language and really just you can hear the French much more clearly when there's not so much movement in the tone, you know? Three more performances. Oscillation in the tone. We have to just give credit to Christian Van Horn, uh, Ryan Opera Center alum, now, you know, really one of the only people singing roles like this and just singing it so healthily and very handsome on stage. and Gigantic uh, on stage. Yeah, and yeah. Annie Rosen, who is also Ryan Center alum, uh, singing Seabell, always beautiful, charming, delightful. But in the last few minutes we have in this episode, I wanted to just talk about the Met HD Semiramide, uh, which is an opera I love. It's, it has a really silly story and a silly ending, but there's just great vocal fireworks. By Rossini. Balcons Spectacular, yeah. And this is a production that was uh, revived. The last time they did it was like in the 90s with like June Anderson and Marilyn Horn. Uh, finally, we have some singers who can do this music. Angela Mead as Semiramide, um, Elizabeth Deschong as Arsace, Javier Camarena as uh, Idreno, um, Ildar Ad... Oh, God. How do you say his name? Ab- Abdrazakov as um, Asur. And a beautiful kind of cameo by Ryan Speedo Green in the role of Oroe. Yeah. Javier Camarena steals the show. He's the only person that sings his way and doesn't let Maurizio Benini's crazy tempi uh, control how he performs his music. Benini has a very strong uh, approach, very aggressive approach to singing Rossini. And it sounded like all the singers were coached to do it the way he wants them to do it, which is to uh, take a lot of, take tempos very fast and to make the uh, 16th notes uh, grouped sort of like on the back end of the beat. So as opposed to doing it very rhythmically, the coloratura, they kind of group the coloratura together and it feels like more like Monteverdi, like, you know, like more like gestural coloratura than like very even coloratura, which is, a, is an approach. I did not care for it. I know that all of the singers in that cast can do it more rhythmically and it just means more to me that way. Like, it's the way that Joan Selda and Marin Horn sing it, you know? And I, maybe I'm just so old-fashioned, but it really bothered me. And, like, it just took away some of the beauty of some of those beautiful, beautiful concilenas and cabaletas. I have to say that the intermission feature was amazing because we got to see Ildar Abratsakov uh, full, Pronounce his name. Full nipples. Mm-hmm. Like he came out in the Samuel Remy costume, which is like basically just like Watch a harness. Watch out, Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he even acknowledged it, like how like it was sort of a ridiculous thing for him to be wearing because he's kind of a beefy guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. What was the production like? Just 
Oh, it's just like park and bark, like okay. ancient, you know, styrofoam walls. Everywhere. Yeah, like yeah, pyramids and like, um, you know, um, ex- extras wearing uh, what do you call those? Like a uh, unitards. No, like yeah, but sa- sandals and like loincloth. Yeah, gladiator outfits. You know, so you see big palm. Yeah, you see you see lots and, of yeah. legs, lots of chest, lots of shoulder. You know, and one thing that was odd, I have to say, is like one of the you know, body double people, one of the supernumeraries was so white and like, it looks so strange because every, I mean, this opera says be like whatever in a, a Syria, you know, and, or Babylon, you know, hashtag Rossini. So yeah. white, but it was, he was like, so, so white. Like he was, you're not talking about the ghost, are you? No, no. He was like, he was like, he was like, a that gi- guy was supposed to be white. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Ghosts are white. You heard it here first. Um, and I have to say one more weird thing. This is like completely unrelated, but, um, you know, the, the HD, uh, preamble to the opera they like have the camera panning on the audience just right. so we can say look who's at the opera look at all the young people and like the camera for whatever reason zoomed in on this young couple they're probably in their like early 20s and the woman was literally picking the wax out of her boyfriend's ear and like the camera stayed on them it was so strange the 21st century kiss cam <laughs> <laughs> I do not know why that yeah, stuck with cam. me but it was disgusting and I'm sure a lot of people saw it and you know what I'm talking about so Sami Ramadei. I don't know what to say <laughs> about that other than we need to wrap the show up like right now. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. That's the most bizarre thing I think I've ever heard about in the Opera House. <laughs> All right, who's got what? Good call, bad call. I mean, right now I'm going to say that my good call is all those singers can write in their bios that they <laughs> appeared in the same performance as that earwax. So <laughs> that's something else. Um, you know, last Saturday, um, the Verdi Requiem performed by Apollo Chorus with Sarah Gartshore, Lauren Decker, Scott Ramsey, who was our guest, and Sam Handley, conducted by Stephen Altop. They brought it. And like this is sort of like a semi-professional choir and I wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was. And a lot of people heard contralto Lauren Decker for the first time. And they will never forget how her voice filled this gigantic space and was as loud, if not louder, than the Apollo Chorus, which is like has 200 members. So this is a career on the rise. She's a, her second year Ryan Opera Center. Look out for her. It, it is a, a voice to be reckoned with. And there's a lot going on in the city right now. We have uh, Chicago Fringe Opera's production of, uh, what's it called again? The Great God Pan, which stars our very own Toby, Toby McGuire, uh, Toby Wright. Uh, and then there's Fellow Travelers coming. You can go see Cozy with uh, Andrew Stenson this week. And you can go hear Martin Bernheim, Martin Bern- Benjamin Bernheim and Eileen Perez <laughs> and Faust. I can't get names right today. <laughs> it's contagious. This is, yeah, yeah, this is a great week for some sanging. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a doubleheader. March 21st, I'm going to do Faust in the Afternoon, Fellow Travelers in the Evening. Hey, it's Phonathon, one time of the year where we ask you to help us out here at WNUR. It's so easy to give, WNUR.org. We are so close. We need to get to $20,000. We just have a few more hours to do. Please help us out. Here at Opera Box Score, let me give a shout-out to Barbara in New Haven, Connecticut, for her donation to our show. Appreciate that. You can give it operaboxscore.com slash donate. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song, Vodka and Foreigner, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And 
Of course, you can leave a review when you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you drink your body weight in Guinness this weekend. We're back on Monday, March 19th at 9 p.m. Central. More opera news, hot takes. Join us, please. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment.